Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Rudy DeLeon. I'm a senior vice president here at the Center for American Progress um, for National Security and International Policy. And on behalf of the panelists and my colleagues here at the Center, welcome and thank you for coming to today's event on closing Guantanamo. Uh, this is a an event we've had a major response in terms of attendance today and want to thank the audience for their interest in their joining in and being part of our program. After almost seven years, the end of the Guantanamo operation is near. The President-elect in his statements that his administration intends to close the prison camp has shifted debate away from an argument about whether it should be closed to a discussion about how precisely to close it. Reaching the decision to close Guantanamo is only the beginning of a process. Major questions remain. The trial, transfer, release, or resettlement of the approximately 230 remaining Guantanamo detainees. We are fortunate to have with us three people who have thought and written extensively about the challenges involved in closing Guantanamo and each of their organizations have produced reports outlining a plan to close the prison camp. Our program today, and we'll have three segments, we'll ask the panelists to make their comments, all do a round of, uh, of questions to the panelists, and then the final third of our program will be to open it up to the audience and to ask you to participate and to ask your questions. So our program begins with the opening remarks from each of the panelists followed by the discussion, followed by your questions. Now briefly, the members of our panel. Dr. Sarah Mendelson is Director of the Human Rights and Security Initiative and a Senior Fellow in the Russian and Eurasian Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dr. Mendelson led a CSIS-sponsored working group in an extensive review of Guantanamo policy that culminated in the report, Closing Guantanamo, from Bumper Sticker to Blueprint, released in July 2008. Elisa Massimino was named Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of Human Rights First in September 2008 after having served for more than 10 years as the organization's Washington Director. Human Rights First, published in August 2008, a report, How to Close Guantanamo, blueprint for the next administration. Third, my colleague Ken Good is Associate Director for International Rights and Responsibilities at the Center here. Ken has written numerous columns, papers, and reports on Guantanamo, most recently his report, How to Close Guantanamo, published in June 2008. So with that introduction, we will start our program, and I will yield the floor to Dr. Mendelson. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank my colleagues from CAP. Um, Ken is uh, the recipient of anxious emails in the morning when I'm looking at the papers and uh, angsting over what people have said or not said and so on Guantanamo. So it's, it's great to be here sharing with you uh, my thoughts. I want to do three things in the time that I have. I want to give you a brief answer um, on how to close Guantanamo and we can talk in more detail, but I want to then explain the larger foreign policy context and why I think that this is important. Uh, and if there's time, I want to offer a brief word about how this issue and other issues related to human rights 
ought, I think, to sit in the Obama foreign and security policy agenda. So my view on what ought to happen uh, with Guantanamo came from a lengthy and collaborative process that I'd like to recognize and tell you a little bit about. Uh, we first convened the working group in late November 2007, and the purpose was really to develop policy recommendations for what ought to be done with those currently detained at Guantanamo. This was a nonpartisan working group, and it combined executive branch experience, intelligence, military, human rights, and international law experience. And we didn't begin with either the idea that it ought to be closed or left open. Instead, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what questions we needed to ask and then figuring out what sorts of experts were best suited to answer them. Uh, later sessions were spent with 15 additional experts exploring specific issues. Then we engaged in a lengthy debate within the group concerning the specific recommendations and policy positions. We met 18 times over seven months, and then I wrote this report and we released a draft in July, got public comment, uh, and met with members of Congress, and uh, got a lot of feedback, and then uh, issued a final version in September. This report, um, we've left a few copies and an op-ed that came out of it, out front is not a consensus document, but it was based on general agreement on the outline of the recommendations. The first thing to say is, yes, uh, the challenges to closing Guantanamo are considerable. There is no silver bullet. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of, frankly, imperfect options. And how the Obama administration closes Guantanamo is ultimately more important, I think, than the commitment to close it. That is, we don't want to see Guantanamo closed only to be moved to the United States. Now, over all the 18 sessions and careful review in its discussion with former prosecutors, retired CIA and FBI officers, uniformed service members, and others, we landed with a fairly straightforward policy. Review the files, release and transfer some, and try others. Here are the nuts and bolts. During the first week in office, and hopefully during the inaugural address, President Obama announces his plan for closing Guantanamo and a blue ribbon panel to shepherd the process. Now, why a blue ribbon panel? After years of an administration that both called those detained in Guantanamo as the worst of the worst, but also released more than 500 of them, we need trusted figures to tell us who is there. The president should ask the panel to put the 230 or so remaining detainees into one of two categories. Those who should be prosecuted through the U.S. criminal justice system, and those who should be released. Once that sorting of the detainees is done, then the detainees would either be moved to the destination of release or to the United States for prosecution. And there are a lot of different elements in that that we can get to in the question and answer. The final element of the new policy would be to prosecute these people through the U.S. criminal justice system. And we came to that conclusion after a careful review, and I think Elisa will touch on some of it. But it seemed that the record of the U.S. criminal justice system was by far uh, more substantial than that of the military commission, something like 145 convictions versus three. The policy recommendation involves, that I've just made, making a cultural and, I would say, strategic shift in how the Obama administration will counter terrorist threats. It's a shift away from reliance on indefinite detention and interrogation an extraordinary rendition, which has been really characteristic of the Bush administration. And it's a shift towards diplomacy, intelligence, 
uh, the use of intelligence and prosecution. But it also means a greater uh, development of resilience, uh, as our closest allies have done in countering threats, which frankly are, are far greater, and we can talk about that more in Q&A. Now I want to turn to the larger foreign policy context in which I think this ought to unfold. Guantanamo torture, detention without charge, rendition of detainees from justice, these have all had numerous negative consequences for U.S. national security. According to flag officers, this includes the recruitment of insurgents in Iraq. According to researchers at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center, uh, there are scores of references by top al-Qaeda leaders referencing Guantanamo, and they were very generous to share many of these with me. But this leads me to the consequences that you hear less about. These policies have done terrible damage to U.S. soft power, to our moral and strategic authority, and repairing that damage must be a top priority of the Obama administration, and it will help with policies that frankly have nothing to do with terrorism or al-Qaeda, and let me explain. You may be puzzled why a Russia specialist would be on a panel on how to close Guantanamo. Well, let me explain. Uh, I've spent the better part of 15 years working alongside Russian colleagues to support the development of democracy and human rights in Russia. Since 2001, this work became increasingly difficult, not only because of the actions of the Putin government, but because of specific policies adopted by the Bush administration con concerning detention and torture. Increasingly, I heard activists say to me, you need to get your own house in order in order to be able to help us. Increasingly, when I talked to American diplomats, they would say, our authority, our leverage has been spent. When we bring up issues having to do with detention and torture in Chechnya, they bring up Guantanamo. In fact, American authorities lost most, if not all, leverage concerning a variety of civilian disappearances and dysfunctional counterterrorism policies, not only in the North Caucasus of, of, of uh, Russia, but in Uzbekistan's Fergana Valley, uh, or in, in encouraging increasing authoritarianism uh, in Russia, including uh, the desire to change internationally recognized borders in Georgia. Others point to the impact in Pakistan, Zimbabwe, and China, all these governments drawing negative lessons from U.S. behavior. I would add that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that Russia, together with China, have increasingly been able to set the table concerning the rule of law and human rights, advancing a conception of hyper-sovereignty that challenges decades of international law, international law that the United States has been central in shaping. The trend in the United Nations Security Council is for China and Russia to block international responses to evidence of gross human rights violations and allowing for continued instability. In other words, human rights abuses by the United States has had a destabilizing effect more generally in the international system. Now finally, uh, let me just talk a little bit about the process of, of how I'd like to see the Obama team tackle this. Um, I have an article that's coming out in a couple weeks in the Washington Quarterly that looks at the state of the human rights movement uh, using the anniversary of the, the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's a very somber time. And there are many people that I spoke with who, who talked about the need for the Obama administration to have a team of leaders, senior leaders, that really are opting back into the international system uh, but who are leading the way and, and making human rights a much more 
um, substantial part of U.S. foreign policy so that people understand it as a security matter. Uh, and in this, personalities do matter. We're going to be looking for a team of dedicated people inside the U.S. government to advance the ball on a number of issues. They're going to have to coordinate policies across several agencies, beginning, I hope, with closing Guantanamo. Um, I think I'd like to see a number of uh, policies articulated that place a focus on human rights as advancing U.S. national interests vis-a-vis -vis key relationships, whether it's Russia, China, uh, Pakistan, or Iran. Uh, it seems to me we need a variety of these things in order to opt back in. We might need new structures, uh, such as a repair shop somewhere inside the U.S. government, whether that's in the NSC or at the State Department, some directorate that is thinking about human rights and international law that would not only coordinate policy concerning closing Guantanamo, but overseeing this opt-back-in agenda. And it does seem to me a promising moment in the sense that if you think back to 2002, when there were probably a handful of human rights organizations calling for the closing of Guantanamo, by 2008, you had all the retired uh, former secretaries of state, uh, including Henry Kissinger, saying that Guantanamo was a bad idea and it needed to be closed. So there is some momentum to be, to be built on, some way of, uh, I think, ensuring that the foreign policy and security community understands the very dire uh, security implications of human rights abuse. And that's a, a point to, to move off of. Thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I also want to add my uh, gratitude to uh, the Center for American Progress for convening this. Um, it's very timely. And, and I also want to thank uh, uh, Sarah for all the work that she's done on this and for including uh, us in her, uh, in her study uh, and discussions leading up to this uh, very excellent study. Um, I, uh, I, first, I, I, I think I can make this pretty brief because I agree with so much of what Sarah has said, uh, in particular about the, the importance of dealing with Guantanamo in the broader human rights context. I also just want to add, though, a, a, another kind of context point. You know, a, as a human rights advocate, I have often been asked um, by my friends in the administration and, and, and in public audiences and, uh, about why a, a, an organization uh, that purports to deal with international human rights abuses around the world would spend so much time worrying about a few hundred people uh, in a prison in Cuba. Um, and, uh, and, and Sarah has answered that, I think, really well. Uh, you know, we, all, almost all of the uh, human rights colleagues that we work with in other countries uh, are desperate for the United States to be able to lead again on human rights, and Guantanamo is a big boulder in the, in the, um, in the road on that path. But there's this other uh, question of context that I think is also important, and I think Failure to think about it has gotten in the has has very much been a boulder in the road for the current administration. M many of whose leadership, uh, including the current president, has said uh, that you know, gee, we wish we could close Guantanamo, um, but the problem is that the people there are too dangerous, or we don't have systems to deal with them, and and there's been very little uh, attention paid to the broader context of how does a system like this fit into our broader counterterrorism strategy. What's the role of detention and trial? Um, and, uh, and so I wanted just to, uh, to, to point out that, you know, in, um, 
uh, in the uh, updated counterinsurgency uh, field manual that uh, General Petraeus um, oversaw the production of before he left uh, for Iraq, um, you know, there, there are a lot of lessons in here, and this reflects the lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but, but one of the lessons is how to treat uh, captured um, uh, insurgents. And I, I want to just draw your attention to one, one piece of this um, that, uh, that says, um, to establish legitimacy, uh, commanders uh, transition security activities from combat operations to law enforcement as quickly as feasible. When insurgents are seen as criminals, they lose public support. Using a legal system established in line with local culture and practices to deal with such criminals enhances the government's legitimacy. Illegitimate actions are those involving the use of power without authority, whether committed by government, government officials, security forces, or counterinsurgents. Such actions include unjustified or excessive use of force, unlawful detention, punishment without trial, and the like. Um, so I, I think it's important for us as we get closer and closer to D-Day on, on decisions, decision day about Guantanamo, to think about uh, the role that Guantanamo plays in a broader counterterrorism strategy. Um, I, I think that that can help us get over the hump of the very difficult, as I, I totally agree with Sarah, that this is not an easy problem to solve. If it were, it would already be solved. Um, and, and I also just want to make one other broader point, which is that in, in, in this relates to what comes after Guantanamo. Um, we have a blueprint. It's out there. It gives you all the steps, and, and it, it varies only in small details, I think, from, uh, from the report that, uh, that Sarah, uh, Sarah's outfit has put out. Um, but uh, but I, I think it's really important for us to learn some of the lessons of Guantanamo so that we don't perpetuate them. Because in effect, a lot of the procedures at Guantanamo that we now have, CSRTs and ARBs and all of that, are you know kind of the latest band-aid on a previous mistake and has create and really has made it much harder now to dismantle all of it that we ought to be I, I think uh, treating this in, in some ways as a sui generis a thing unto itself that, that that we need to take care of and make some difficult choices about um, uh, moving as many people as we can who have committed crimes against the United States into the criminal justice system and figuring out transfer uh, transfers for the rest of them. Um, but one of the things that you so often hear uh, stands in the way of prosecutions has been the way that detainees have been treated um, in interrogation or detention. Um, and that's, that, that's a problem that we've created for ourselves uh, that was unnecessary, I think. Um, and uh, and we've, we're going to have to deal with it now. Uh, and it is going to make some of the prosecutions harder. Um, but one thing we can do is draw a line in that in the sand and, and, and or turn the page and, and not uh, persist in creating those same problems for us in the future. Uh, and I, I think that on the legitimacy front, that, that's another major question in, you know, many have said that the, that the uh, or some at least, have, have argued that the, one of the solutions to Guantanamo is to essentially move the system uh, into our domestic system and to you know, create a new court system and new powers for uh, detention without trial um, with some additional due process protections. And I, I think there are a lot of lessons to learn from Guantanamo in the military commissions. One is that if you've got a system that's working pretty well, and as this we'll talk about later, this report that we did 
with some federal uh, former federal prosecutors shows that the the, the criminal justice system is working uh, quite well to adapt to the challenges of uh, of terrorism cases. Um, then you ought not to uh, jump in and create a new system, which is undoubtedly going to have a lot of legal challenges associated with it, and and may end up perpetuating the international perception problems that we've had with Guantanamo instead of solving them, which is one of really one of the key uh, motivating factors for closing the place down. Thanks, Lisa, and thanks, Rudy, for moderating. Um, I certainly have set myself a difficult task choosing to follow both Sarah and Elisa. I have come to know and respect each of them over the last several years, and I am very pleased they accepted our invitation to appear today, and I am honored to sit with them on this panel. And a special thanks to all of you I, for braving the elements on a really miserable day outside and for, uh, for coming here to the Center to hear our discussion. I think the sheer numbers here today emphasize the high level of interest and expectation, really, surrounding President-elect Obama's plans for closing Guantanamo, and I look forward to a fulsome session. Instead of going through my own plan for closing Guantanamo, which is broadly similar to both Sarah's and Elisa's, I'm going to address three points in my opening remarks, and I will happily discuss my proposal for closing Guantanamo in the Q&A session. The first point has a lot to do with those expectations that all of us have about have for the Obama administration, and, and that is the timeline of what we can and should expect of, of action on Guantanamo. Second, I will briefly discuss one option that Elisa just mentioned there and is getting a fair amount of attention in the media, and that is the prospect of creating a national security court or special terror courts for the trials of Guantanamo detainees. And lastly, and somewhat with caution, I will raise the one point that I think Sarah and Elisa and I disagree on the most. Um, and that is what role, if any, should military detention play in the closure of Guantanamo. On the timeline, it's clear that Barack Obama's election has created a new sense of optimism in the United States and around the world about U.S. policy on detainees as well as, and as many other areas as well. That honeymoon is likely to be brief, however, unless he follows through with real policy changes. And as a result, some have argued that the Obama administration should close, Obama, cl close Guantanamo very quickly, and perhaps even in the first 100 days, moving all of the detainees into the United States. I think doing this would be a mistake that would unnecessarily create new practical and logistical problems surrounding Guantanamo. The ultimate de destination for most of the deta these detainees is not going to be the United States, and it's unlikely that any one U.S. facility is capable of holding the 230-plus detainees that are at Guantanamo right now. In such circumstances, I think it would be an unnecessary burden to move all of these detainees and find a location capable of handling them within the United States. It's just not necessary to do it. What I do think the Obama administration should do is similar to what Sarah has outlined. First, set a firm fixed date for the closure of Guantanamo. I have recommended an 18-month timeline. I think both Sarah and Elisa favor a 12-month timeline. That's a little different. Um, we can argue about it, but I'm not really sure it's worth arguing over. Um, but then secondly, I think the Obama administration should immediately suspend all activity in the military commissions, and that can be done on the first day. Just stop them. Um, you know, Guantanamo cannot continue to exist with only an aspirational goal that at some vague point in the future it will be closed, or else the Obama administration will justifiably lose the support of many of those who hope for serious changes. Yet we cannot expect that they will have all of the details of its Guantanamo policy worked out in the first days and weeks after it takes office. 
setting a fixed date at some point in the future should satisfy those who rightfully demand action, yet still allow the necessary time to work through all of the challenges surrounding closing the prison. I think that we can all agree that the entire military commissions process has been a disaster. You know, seven years after they've created and only three detainees have been convicted and two of them have already been released. Um, it's clear that the president-elect does not want to use this tainted system for the prosecution of any Guantanamo detainees, let alone for the very important trials of those accused of planning the 9-11 attacks. Yet the commissions are still operating and several important cases could move ahead in the next few weeks. The Military Commissions Act grants the President, through the Secretary of Defense, the power to convene the military commissions, and he can suspend them at any time. He should do so immediately upon taking office. Despite all the troubles associated with the Military Commissions experiment, some, as, as Elisa said, are now recommending that the Obama administration create yet another new system of justice, this time in the guise of, of a new national security court system to handle terrorism cases. I think this is a terrible idea that would institutionalize the failures of the Bush administration and in some ways would be actually worse than the military commissions. Even under the most favorable reading, it is difficult to identify a single problem with the military commissions that a national security court would solve and it would likely create new ones. Any national security court system would have to be created by Congress, a process that will certainly take time. It is virtually guaranteed after the experience of the last seven years that any new trial system would face significant legal challenges, adding further delays. The first military commission did not begin until 2004, the first case was not resolved until 2006, and the first actual trial did not occur until 2008. A delay of even a fraction that long to begin a trial in the new administration would be unacceptable. National security courts are designed with one objective in mind, and that is making it easier for prosecutors to obtain convictions in terrorism cases. Any court established along those lines would be, become irresistible to prosecutors, likely drawing in far more cases than its proponents ever envisioned. Prosecutors are already far more inclined to describe their prosecutions in terrorism cases. In an ana analysis that I think Elisa is going to talk about further, um, terrorism cases in U.S. courts from 2001 to 2007 the Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys, and that's the prosecutors, listed 3,094 separate terrorism prosecutions, while the Administrative, Administrative Office of U.S. Courts, which is the courts, identified only 99 such cases in the same period. If prosecutors are 30 times more likely than the courts to describe a case as involving terrorism now, imagine what would occur if there was a special court only for terrorism cases specifically designed to obtain a conviction. It defies logic to attempt to fix the problems with one experimental trial system by creating another new trial system when a perfectly good one already exists. Federal courts have tried some of the most dangerous criminals and terrorists that the world has ever known, even securing convictions in extremely challenging circumstances against defendants not unlike many of those at Guantanamo. Any trials of Guantanamo detainees belong in established U.S. courts. And now I come to my last point. What role should lawful military detention play in the closure of Guantanamo? I strongly favor the general principle that those detainees that are accused of crime should be put on trial in established criminal or military courts. But I do not believe that this should be the only option for the continued detention of the relatively small number of Guantanamo detainees that were captured in connection with the armed conflict in, in Afghanistan but are not likely to face trial in U.S. courts. Preventive military detention during armed conflict is the foundation of the concept of a prisoner of war and would normally not be controversial. The problem here, of course, is that Guantanamo has so poisoned the notion of military detention that any form of it has become toxic. 
think it is understandable after our experiences under the Bush administration to underestimate the prospect that the new Obama team could craft a regime of military detention that is firmly rooted in both U.S. domestic and international law and is only targeted at actual enemies and actual combatants. This program should not be used as a means of avoiding difficult decisions about many of the Guantanamo detainees, but I believe it can be an important and necessary tool to protect the United States and our allies and do so within the law. I would like to close by echoing all of the important justifications that both Sarah and Elisa raised for closing Guantanamo. It is certainly true that Guantanamo has become a strategic problem for the United States. It has harmed our relations with our allies, it has aided the repressive policies of some of the world's worst regimes, and it has served as a recruiting tool for our enemies and adversaries that is direct directly responsible for the death of many Americans. But even if none of that were true, it would still be necessary to close Guantanamo because it is simply the right thing to do. The United States is not a perfect country, but we do possess the virtually unique ability among nations to correct our errors, learn from our mistakes, and emerge as a country that is both stronger and more free. I believe that we can do so again. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thanks, Ken, and thank, thank you, panelists, for your opening comments. Before I ask any questions, let me yield back to the panel and see if they have any additional comments they would like to make based on their colleagues' presentations. Well, I, I could maybe say one word about our, our uh, small area of disagreement, although I, I'm not you know, I, I think even within that, there's a, a, a large area of agreement um, on this question of, of military detention. Preventive detention uh, is certainly a, a, a feature of, of uh, uh, the laws of war and, um, and, and is contemplated in the Geneva Conventions. It's lawful. Um, and so I think, you know, in, in theory, um, you know, had we started at the beginning uh, complying with the Geneva Conventions and treated people who were picked up uh, in accordance with our own uh, provisions implementing the Geneva Conventions and Army regulations, um, we wouldn't be having at least part of this discussion uh, today. Um, but that's what I meant when I said that I think Guantanamo is is now a, a, a thing unto itself that can't be solved just by going, you know, winding back the clock and saying, let's do it over and do it the way we should have done it. Uh, there's too much water uh, uh, over the dam for that. Um, and so while I, th I, I think it's really important to say that going forward, certainly in situations of armed conflict, you know, where the United States is picking up uh, combatants on the battlefield, uh, there is absolutely a role uh, for uh, preventive detention under the, under the laws of war. Um, and, and we ought to use it. And, and part of the reason we're in this mess is that we didn't. Um, and I, I, I think uh, for the, all the other things that we talked about here, about the, you know, the need to turn the page and all of that, that we need, to, um, we need to kind of treat this problem in a different way. I'd like to make just two points, and they're both um, really directed to uh, anybody on the transition team who happens to be listening and hasn't made up their mind about what to do. Um, if this isn't done by, I think it's January 26th, then the Obama administration is going to own the military commissions because that's when Khadr's trial uh, begins. So some people have said to me, you know, the inaugural address, I think it's 20 minutes long at this point. Uh, there's a lot. Everybody wants their issue. Why can't this wait, for example, for the State of the Union address? Because uh, it's too late. It needs to happen, if not in the inaugural address, it needs to happen in the first... 48, 72 hours. 
Um, so just to, when you say this, you don't mean closing it down. No, you mean no, declaring right, that right. it will be closed. Um, what needs to happen, and I think we'll talk about this more in the, the Q and A, is that um, friends and allies are looking for more than rhetoric. Uh, but at the same time, I completely agree with Ken that we don't want a, a, a quick move everybody to the United States, essentially moving Guantanamo to the U.S. I think there is a policy process that can be outlined and begun, including with getting somebody on a plane to Europe uh, to discuss whatever kind of help and support uh, can happen, literally on January 20th, if not on the 21st. Uh, I think that th this panel or whoever is reviewing the files should be making decisions on a rolling basis. And I do think that you know, giving either a six-month or 12-month uh, time period to do this and showing periodic progress is going to be an important way. I think it's important to reassure the American public that this is being done in a thoughtful, serious way. And for that reason, it can't be done in a 24-hour period. Uh, but I think it can be done in a 12-month period. The other point, again, for anybody who's listening, um, is not to be afraid. There is a huge amount of fear language that we hear. Um, I heard a report yesterday on NPR that was all about fear and about people who haven't committed crimes but are too dangerous to release. Again, I work on Russia. That sounds familiar. That's not something I really want to replicate in the United States. But that also, I think the Obama administration will find surprising coalitions that are very supportive within government of this policy. I think there are a lot of uniformed service members who don't put on a uniform every single day in order to defend detention without charge. They put on a uniform, at least ones that we consulted, in order to uphold values that this country is known for or was known for, and that that should be what the Obama administration uh, carries around with them. Okay, well, thank you, panelists. So to get us going, because I think the whole focus of this is that the decision's been made to close Guantanamo, and so how to do it. And so 12 months to 18 months, you know, small ones, but let's, let's start talking about mechanical issues, and let's assume that the three of you have input to the, to the next administration. You're experts in this field. And so let's talk about the mechanics of closing Guantanamo. And let me ask the panel then to look at it from three perspectives. The first pers perspective is what can we reasonably ask our allies to do in terms of helping us close Guantanamo? I note that there's an article this morning where a senior UN official says that the United States can't do it alone, that it needs active support from its allies in terms of how to process some of the people. So the first issue is, what can we really expect to ask uh, from, from our allies? The second, um, and I think uh, Sarah raised the issue that there's an immediate question in terms of a tribunal scheduled to go forward, and so how to, how to handle that. But then quickly, how to decide which of the approximately 235, and we'll assume that we're going to do the blue ribbon assessment so that we've got an inventory on, on, on all of those at Guantanamo. But second, uh, quickly, how to process those where prosecution is the only path forward, given the nature of the evidence uh, available on them. And then third, more complicated, how to process that category called others. Mm. And in that 
pot um, are just to, to note we've got the the plight of the, the Uyghurs um, how to handle that group of individuals I note that we've got a Washington Post story that says that uh, approximately 100 of the 235 at Guantanamo are of Yemeni descent. So what, what does that tell us uh, about, about that group? So let me ask the panelists to discuss these three issues. What is it logically um, an expectation from our allies in terms of their support? How to quickly press forward in terms of dealing with those where prosecution is the only response? And then third, how to deal with that other category of, of persons that are at Guantanamo. So let's, we'll start with Sarah and just work our way through. Um, when we convened this uh, working group to, to tackle these problems, um, I think the people in the room thought it was important, but a lot of people um, I know sort of thought, what, you know, why are you working on this? You've got a lot of other work to do. What's been amazing to me is how almost immediately after the election, it, this has really become sort of in the zeitgeist. I mean, it's become this issue that everybody's focused on. Now, in absence of actually knowing, we made an assumption uh, that European allies would help, that they would step up. And we, we didn't do it completely out of thin air. We'd had meetings with various senior diplomats. Um, but frankly, to date, we have, we have some commitments. Things have firmed up. The Portuguese and the German government have come forward. We know that there are uh, EU-level officials that are anxious to see something go on. But my understanding is that uh, the Europeans are looking for, there, there are some governments that are interested in helping in different categories, in different ways. But everybody's looking to make sure the Obama administration takes the first step. Um, so the Obama administration is going to need to go to the Europeans rather than for the Obama administration to wait for the Europeans to go to them. So that's why I make the point that literally on the 20th there needs to be a senior envoy uh, going to Europe and using diplomacy uh, to, to figure this out. And I'd like to see maybe some um, folks from the Justice Department alongside. Um, the Europeans are going to be looking to make sure that we are also taking some folks. So. To handle the Uyghur question, I would say that that, that is something that if, if the, there are communities in the United States ready to receive the Uyghurs and that that should go forward. Um, it's also extremely important that as the uh, President Obama lays out the process, that the process does not include this third category or national security courts. I think the Europeans are going to be looking at that as not the solution. So the willingness to help, frankly, depends on the way in which the Obama administration untangles the problem. Um, the, there's also a time pressure in Europe, which is that the, I think the EU is set to take up this issue also on the 26th of January. Now, my understanding is between now and the 20th, uh, the transition team is either prohibited or reluctant to engage foreign governments on any specific details. So this literally means between the 20th and the 26th, this needs to be a high priority. Um, in terms of the prosecution, I'll just uh, say quickly and then defer to my colleagues. Um, if we have teams of diplomats going out and working this problem with friends and allies, I think we also need teams of FBI uh, agents and prosecutors going out to gather new uh, evidence. 
for those that we determine um, that can be released, there, or sorry, that can be prosecuted, there's probably going to be new information that needs to be gleaned. Uh, having talked to former prosecutors uh, and FBI agents, apparently this happens often, uh, even for crimes that occurred several years ago overseas. So we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, but we need to make sure that the process uh, is, adheres to our own standards. Um, the one last point is that in, in dealing with the Europeans, uh, some governments may be willing to take some people. Others may have better relationships with countries that have reintegration programs. Some governments may know much more about reintegration programs. Thinking creatively uh, about how you handle people who you're worried about, our friends and allies have a lot of experience with this. I, I guess I, I will speak to the um, uh, prosecution question, and now would be the great time for me to hold up our report mm -hmm. uh, called In Pursuit of Justice, but I left every single one of them that I brought out on the table there, so hopefully you have that uh, with you. Um, uh, first, I just want to say that and make clear at the outset that, um, you know, while we believe that the, the smartest thing to do with those who have uh, committed crimes against the United States, uh, suspected terrorists, is to put them on trial in, in our own uh, federal courts. Um, we don't think that uh, the federal criminal system is the answer to terrorism. And I think that's part of the way that we kind of veered off the track of, of really exploiting fully our own criminal justice system was initially there was this, this uh, desire uh, to really put the whole thing on a war uh, footing. And in doing so, sort of, you know, reject almost ideologically this idea that you could be issuing indictments to Al-Qaeda Al Al operatives. Um, but, but actually, you know, while all of that uh, rhetoric was going on, uh, the system was, was prosecuting terrorism cases um, and was doing a, a really good job of it. Um, this, this report that we did, which was uh, researched and written for us by two former federal prosecutors, um, looked at... Uh, we had a narrower definition than, than, uh, than, than the Justice Department has, but really looked at what we called, you know, international terrorism cases, Al-Qaeda related, um, and looked at more than 100 of those uh, over the last 10 years or so, uh, and specifically looked at the, the issues that always come up when you hear discussions about, well, our system can't handle it because you've got classified evidence problems and you have Miranda issues and you have, you know, the security of the courts and you have Brady problems and all of that. And, and so the, the, um, the report really digs down deep and looks at the underlying documents and how really did the courts grapple with these things. Um, and the answer is pretty well. Uh, you know, the federal courts uh, were, were very adaptable and, and innovative. Um, now, some people might not like some of the innovations, uh, but, um, but they, they found ways to deal with this in a way that uh, produced um, really highly successful results in terms of putting very dangerous people away for a long period of time. Um, the other thing uh, that, that the study found that I think is worth noting is that, you know, part of the uh, impetus behind this, you know, shift from law enforcement to war um, was that, well, we want to focus on prevention and law enforcement's not really about prevention. Well, you know, you talk to the law enforcement people and they have a very different view. Uh, and, and in fact, 
you know, what the report details is how, how uh, much intelligence about al-Qaeda's structure operations and even some, some details um, was discovered through the process of prosecution. Um, and, and that plots were disrupted because of that intelligence. Um, the other thing that's important to note, I think, is on, specifically on the classified information uh, issue. Um, you hear a lot, uh, 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 including from the current attorney general, about how you know there just this, there's some information that it would just be too dangerous to disclose and and uh, in in open court, and that the courts would require us to do that. But but actually, what we found, and we looked pretty carefully at this, including some of the cases that have been uh, cited as purported leaks, and found that there hasn't been a single leak of information that was sought to be protected by the prosecution under the Classified Information Procedures Act in any of these cases. Um, so that's a pretty good track record, I think. Um, I, I also just uh, want to mention, you know, we, we um, you know, w whether you do it through a Blue Ribbon Commission or you just task the Justice Department to dive into the records in these cases and figure out what, you know, what, uh, what can we charge these people with. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we, we pulled together in, in a, a meeting of former federal prosecutors uh, in November, um, uh, and a, a bunch of them uh, former U.S. attorneys, and some who had tried terrorism cases, uh, and to talk about this issue, and specifically to talk about do we need a new system, a uh, new court system. And they were fair, fairly familiar with the challenges of the, uh, that terrorism cases pose. But, you know, they looked at, um, you know, so, what we what we know just from the, on the basis of public information about some of the people we want to try who are down at Guantanamo, and largely their reaction was, you know, let's have at those those guys in our system. You know, I've tried a lot harder cases than than this. You know, a couple of those people have been under federal indictment. You know, in the Southern District for for more than a decade, um, and you know, based on evidence we had before we ever laid a hand on them, if that's part of the issue. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's encouraging. Um, not to say that, that there won't be some real challenges and maybe some we don't even know about yet, you know, once, once they get in to the middle of all this and look at the evidence. But, you know, the substantive law has changed uh, pretty dramatically over the last uh, five or six years in terms of its flexibility to deal with all kinds of, of conduct relating to terrorism. So I, I think we, sh we can be pretty... Uh, pretty confident of that. And then just one last point I wanted to mention on, I, I couldn't agree more with Ken about the, the necessity of shutting down the military commissions right away and not, I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I know that the, that, that the uh, incoming administration wants to be very careful not to overstep and all of that, but, but, but really I think some signal ought to be sent right now um, because, you know, if these things progress any further, uh, we may create more problems for ourselves in terms of double jeopardy attaching and all of that if these people are allowed to plead guilty. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that, that, that we can, uh, you know, have that kind of flexibility to turn the page when the day comes to do that. I just want to raise one quick point on the prosecutions before I get on to the really fun questions of the Uyghurs and the Yemenis. Um, and that is, I, I can't imagine a federal prosecutor that wouldn't be desperate to prosecute Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and, and if they're not, they need to get another job. Um, so, and there are numerous other, I mean, Ahmed Galani has been in, under federal indictment in a case that has already secured convictions. Uh, 
um, I think he would be the perfect candidate for the first trial. The case is already there. I mean, they could just move it right back to the, to the Southern District of New York and get going very quickly. Um, on to the slightly more intractable problems of the Uyghurs and the Yemenis. Um, elaborating a little bit more on what Sarah said, uh, the Uyghur question, and for those of you who don't know, I'll very briefly describe, they're a, 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 a Chinese nationality, but ethnically um, they are Muslims from Western China um, who were captured in either Afghanistan or Pakistan and uh, have been at Guantanamo for almost seven years now. Um, they have never actually been suspected of being enemies of the United States. The Justice Department actually now has formally submitted to the to a U.S. court that they are not enemies to the United States. Um, they are, however, uh, either either are or perceived to be enemies of China, and that has presented a significant problem with finding new homes for them. Um, the Chinese government has resisted just about every effort um, to send them to other countries. Albania has taken five of them, much to their chagrin, I think. Um, there really is no prospect of sending them back to China because they would face torture, abuse, or execution, and so they're stuck at Guantanamo. Um, they are about the only category of detainees that you could imagine that would be easily transferred into the United States. They've never been suspected of being enemies of the United States. There is a Uyghur community here in Washington, D.C., who, um, as part of a uh, judicial process, was ready to accept some of the, of the Guantanamo detainees into their communities and allow and, and help them reintegrate. Um, going to Sarah's point about how the United States needs to take the action first, I think many of our allies, both in Europe and elsewhere, are going to look at the Obama administration uh, and their efforts to resettle a lot of detainees outside of the United States with some justifiable caution uh, under the 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 guise of you Europeans or others solving all of our problems for us unless the United States is willing to take some of the responsibility and hold not only those detainees who are going to be incarcerated but accept some detainees that are going to be released into the open in the United States and the Uyghurs are the perfect uh, group for that or at least the best group I should say there's never anything perfect associated with Guantanamo. Um, as to the Yemenis, uh, as Rudy said, there are about 100 remaining at Guantanamo. There were 109 that were originally there, so only a very small number have been released. Um, it is a popular misconception that that is because the Yemenis don't want them back. Um, there are very real concerns uh, about whether the Yemeni government has sufficient control over its prison population to allow some very dangerous uh, detainees to be sent back to Yemen for further incarceration, and, and that is exemplified by the fact that of the dozen or so al-Qaeda operatives who were convicted in Yemen of complicity of the USS coal bombing in 2000, all of them have either been released or escaped under suspicious circumstances. So there is a very legitimate concern about whether or not the Yemenis can handle this, and that is the primary reason that so many Yemenis are still at Guantanamo. Um, not all 100 are going to be sent back to Yemen, um, as some of them are likely to face prosecution in U.S. courts. Um, but we're probably talking about certainly the most sizable group of detainees to have a solution for, um, to need to find a solution for. Um, I think it's going to require a broader set of partners than the United States and Yemen to figure this out. Um, we need to draw on as many allies, maybe even in countries that we don't consider allies, who have better bilateral relationships or multilateral relationships with Yemen or with countries in the region that can help us out. Um, 
many countries in Europe do actually have better bilateral relations with the, with the Yemenis than the United States does. What can they do? Um, there isn't a whole lot of options. Um, it's going to either come down to some capacity building measures, um, which is essentially giving money to the Yemenis to build new prisons, but new prisons aren't necessarily going to solve the problem if there isn't the sufficient will within the government to, to detain these individuals, if that, that's appropriate. And so I think one thing that we could do is to not ask for simply the capacity building in the nature of money, but to ask for some kind of monitoring program to be established alongside with the commitment to build new prisons or to improve the prison facilities that they have. That could be take many forms. It could be simply an international monitoring team that exists in the prisons for some period of years that's gradually reducing the, their numbers as it becomes more successful. Um, or something more permanent or more structured. Now, whether or not the Yemenis are going to be willing to accept those kinds of terms, I'm not sure, um, but I don't think anything like that has been tried uh, to date. Um, if we cannot come to a solution to this problem, we are going to have to look elsewhere beyond Yemen uh, for the ultimate home of these detainees, and some of them are going to need to be incarcerated, and we're going to need to look, and, and it's a much more difficult ask, I think, to some countries in the region particularly, to ask them to incarcerate further their non-nationals. Um, we need to go to some of our best allies in the region, and whether that's, um, well, I, I hasten to, to suggest who it should be, but uh, um, we've got to find a solution to the many problem, and as I think as we get down towards whatever timeline uh, is decided, um, if there are still uh, large numbers of Yemenis at Guantanamo, we're going to be in real trouble. Oh, and I just wanted to add one f final point here over on this question of, of practical uh, solutions. Um, if you all take one thing from, from this panel, I think it's important to, to know that, yes, these are very serious challenges. They are real challenges. They can't be waved away simply on January 21st because we have a new administration. But just because they're hard does not mean that they don't have solutions and does not mean that a lot of people, three of us, but a lot of other people who have been working on this issue for a number of years now have been considering all of the options involved and have come up with some really reasonable and practical solutions to get around them. So when you hear reports in the press about saying it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, and all these things that we should be afraid of, um, that is all true, but that doesn't mean and that should not be used as an excuse to not do anything or address the problem. So panelists, I'm going to do one more round and then we'll open it up to questions. Because again, our focus point here is, you know, this is about closing the facility. We're looking at this from the interagency perspective. Um, and having sat through countless interagency meetings, they always are important to, to focus on the details. So just one, I think I'm hearing a clear approach from the panel that there is, A, action has to be taken prior to January the 26th and that that will send a signal to our allies that we actively are requesting the engagement and participation of our allies. Next, I'm hearing from the panel that very clearly we need to use the U.S. criminal justice process to the maximum and that there are a category of persons that are incarcerated at Guantanamo that need to go into the criminal justice system for prosecution and that you know we have a system that knows how to in, incarcerate dangerous people as they're awaiting trial. Um, that third category, though, that category of persons that are not identified for 
criminal for the criminal justice system and, and prosecution. This may be the most complicated. How do you process those, given the fact that you know we have a uh, obligation to maintain one of the most cherished concepts of the country, and that is the rule of law, and at the same time a responsibility um, of the U.S. government to provide for the common defense, which means to protect American citizens, American citizens at home, American citizens overseas, U.S. military personnel that are engaged in combat, combat operations. Um, on September the 11th, I was 200 yards from the Pentagon, so I did not see the airplane, but I felt it. Uh, felt the impact going in. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's still a, 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 an, an issue that is, is fresh in our minds. And so, of those remaining, if there is an element that is easily identifiable for criminal prosecution, how do you process the others? Because I think that will help gauge the speed at which you can close Guantanamo completely. Well, um, as you stated, you get a team that starts immediately to review the files. You have a group of people, a Tiger team, that are on the plane uh, going to Europe to figure out who's got what resources and who's willing to help. One of the, one of the, the things that they might pursue, um, and it's an idea that come to me as I'm sitting on this panel, is that the, one of the first things they need to do is, in February, say, have a meeting with uh, different allies that brings together different kinds of expertise, intelligence, military, uh, judicial, that thinks creatively about this issue. I mean, we do this all the time in the non-governmental sector. I don't see why uh, governments can't do it as well. Um, I mean, the former intelligence officers I've talked to have a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, there are a lot, you know, you'd want people who really know, for example, the Saudi program at the table. You'd want ones that have really deep uh, knowledge of, of Yemen. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get two days and, and brainstorm, come up with some uh, creative ideas. So that's, you know, one place to start. I mean, you know, the world is filled with very difficult problems. Surely, this is one that can be solved. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I guess the only thing I would add to that is, you know, I, I would think of, I would approach this as, you know, a, a problem that has two parts. You have, you, you've got to have risk assessment and risk management. So, you know, you, I, I think one of the first assignments is you get, a, you know, an interagency team evaluating individually people who fall into that category, once you've weeded out the ones you want to bring charges against and start to identify secure facilities to move them to and get that process, you know, then you do a, an individualized uh, risk assessment uh, for each of these and then you put a team on saying, how are we going to manage this risk? And, you know, there are lots of, uh, you, you, you know, some of it's going to be a problem that can be solved by money and investment in you know, law enforcement resources in some of the places that we're sending people to. Um, you know, I, I would get that kind of team together, uh, both in our own house and, and inter, you know, internationally, and, and, and come up with those. You know, no one's been tasked with doing that as part of that. I mean, we say that, oh gosh, that's hard, but, and, and, it, and it will be hard, and, it'll, and it will require doing things that aren't perfect, mm -hmm. that we don't, you know, give us the perfect 
set of answers on the uh, you know on any front on the rights front on the security front you know but that's the problem that we've created for ourselves um, but we could do that we just haven't you know no one's been tasked to do it yet may I make Please. one point Ken, if you, you don't mind um, this issue of risk management I think is really critical and it involves in some ways I think a cultural shift for us um, in the UK you know the British government can't for a moment, pretend that um, the British population is invulnerable after anybody who knows anything about the bombing of the UK during World War II. But for Americans, there has been this idea that you can have total security um, and a lack of planning almost even around this. And I think the Bush administration has presented Guantanamo as a risk-free strategy when we've been trying to argue that it is anything but and there have been huge costs. But so there's going to have to be some conversation with the American public that begins to talk about risk management. Is that what you meant, um, Sarah, in your resiliency comment yes, about the Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'll make two quick comments. Uh, first on risk management, um, of course, this would not be the first time that uh, detainees who have been engaged in conflict have been released. Um, the most, the largest example, of course, is World War II. Um, the end, the cessation of, of, of hostilities means that prisoners of war must be released. Um, in our experiences as, as the allies in, in Germany at the end of World War II illustrate, they had some difficult questions about what you do with some of the, the somewhat hardened uh, German soldiers that they had some serious concerns about what would happen should they be released, but they were not guilty of any crime, so they must be released. Well, they established a system of, of monitoring um, those released prisoners that was extremely successful. Now, it's obviously a little bit more easy to do that in an area where there's uh, uh, military occupation. Um, but of course, in the intervening 65 years, there's been a significant amount of advances in technology that may enable us to do a much better job. So I don't think, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can do to mitigate the risk of detainees being released. It's not simply a case of opening up the doors to the jail and waving them goodbye and never see them again. Um, secondly, uh, on the question of how do we go through the process, or I'd actually like to focus the process on the detainees themselves um, and what they stand accused of now. Um, there are a lot of federal crimes associated with terrorism and international terrorism. Um, and addition, in addition to that, it is completely lawful to detain somebody who is, in, who is captured during an armed conflict as a preventive measure. Um, I'm sure it could happen, but I would have a much less sense of an individual detainee's actual dangerousness if we cannot find some law to prosecute them under or we cannot use a lawful form of military detention. If they don't fall, fall into those two categories, um, it strikes me that we have to reassess our own belief about how dangerous this individual could possibly be. Clearly, they can be dangerous, and certainly it, some may feel rather grieved about their detention over the course of the last seven years, to say the least. However, it's far more likely that most of those people just want to get on with their lives if they were wrongfully incarcerated. And if we can't actually find something to prosecute them, prosecute them for or incarcerate them for, it's probably because they're really not that dangerous at all. And it's not to say that there is no risk, because certainly there is. Um, but I think if we, we shift our attention away from what they may do in the future to what they stand accused of now, we will have a much more solid foundation to assess what their future dangerousness may be. Thank you, panelists. Um, 
very helpful. So now we'd like to open it up to the audience for, for questions. And so what I'd like to do is ask each of you when you ask a question to identify yourself, if you're with a media organization to identify your organization. And then um, we have a little bit more than 20 minutes uh, time available. So what I'd like to do is, uh, is recognize three people and put three sets of questions out there for the panelists at a time. Um, I know everyone's got, got views on this, uh, but I used to always remind folks as they're about to testify before Congress that, that remember to differentiate between a speech and a question. And so I'd ask you to really focus on, on, on the questions. So with that, let's do a round of, of, of three, and we'll start with this gentleman in the blue shirt, and then we'll go to this lady on the center aisle, and then we'll go to this gentleman over in the corner. So one, two, three. Uh, th <clears throat> thank you so much. Uh, my name is Richard Gerding, Embassy of the Netherlands. Just as a point of information, the European Ministers of Foreign Affairs are meeting on Thursday, and over lunch they will d discuss the question, if the Obama administration comes to us, how will we react? So this panel is very timely, and the questions are very timely. I have one specific question, especially for Eliza, and that's about uh, bringing uh, uh, the, the Guantanamo detainees to trial, if necessary. In your report, you recognize that maybe not all can be tried within the U.S., and you say perhaps they can be uh, tried outside the U.S. Well, um, in Europe, there has been some, some discussion whether a special tribunal would be a proper solution to, uh, to try these people outside the U.S., but still within the realm of international law. And I would like to hear your, the views of you and the other members of the panel. Thank you. Well, that's that's wait, an interesting. Yes, <laughs> yes, I'm very intrigued by Hi. it. So I'm, I'm Helen Raphael at the moment with resources for the future. I have a law degree, however, and I was particularly interested when I studied law to study the law of different countries as well as international criminal law. And when I say the law of different countries, I mean primarily criminal law, Islamic law, Chinese criminal law, European law is different again, South American law all different from American law, so that the expression, the rule of law, is a little ambiguous, don't you think? Uh, but I've heard you talk about two kinds of law. One is the law of war, and do you mean by that that if our soldiers were captured overseas in some kind of uh, war going on, that the country that captured them should uh, try them, or are we talking about extraterritoriality. Uh, the second thing you talked about was criminal law, which is, again, a very different thing. And the criminal law of different countries are different. International criminal law and the international criminal court that has recently been established, again, has different kinds of law, and, and we pay different attention to it. Don't you have to establish a particular legal basis, or can you keep switching around according to how you want to treat different people who are our captives at the moment. Thank you. This gentleman. Thank you very much. My name is Alec Wallen. I'm actually with the University of Maryland Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy. This question is directed primarily to Ken. Um, Ken, when you said that you thought there might be some uh, call for continued use of military detentions, I wanted to know more about when you thought 
that call might best be answered. And in particular, my concern is with how you would define combatants, because you seem to be wanting to use it in the context of traditional sort of POW detention. But of course, the problem is that under traditional international law, Al-Qaeda members would generally not be considered combatants. They'd be civilians. And this is, of course, a, a very contentious issue. Uh, now in the Almari case coming up in front of the Supreme Court, just how do you define a combatant? Okay, panelists. I'm make one political point, and I'm going to turn it over to the lawyers to, to answer the, the legal questions. Um, I am so happy to hear about the uh, EU meeting on Thursday. I will say, again, as I said to you before, it would be terrific if, for example, senior members of European governments were to publish soon an op-ed that lays out perhaps some of the plans. It needs to be public. Uh, it can be private, but messages should be sent so that those who are trying to figure out their plans have some sense, and because of the legal implications of having the transition team meet with foreign governments, it's problematic, at least present a kind of menu of options and a, and a, and a willingness uh, to, to, to help. So. And I, I have a feeling that um, Ken's done more issue of a special tribunal than I have. Um, I jumped in to answer it because I, I, I found it so intriguing, but I guess the short answer would be it would kind of depend on what that, that uh, body looked like, um, how, how we would feel about it. Um, in, in our report, when we were talking about transfers to other countries for prosecution, uh, you know, our focus uh, at the time was on you know, the idea that there are some of these people who have committed crimes against, you know, in, uh, either against other countries or, you know, in other countries, and that there might be some, uh, you know, justification for transferring them for prosecution there. So uh, I, I'd be eager to hear more about it, but I think I'll let uh, Ken deal with that in more detail. But I do want to, I, I do want to uh, touch on your question about the rule of law and what does it mean and, and, and how do you pick a system. I think that, you know, um, law school was a long time ago for me, but uh, but but my sense of you know a rule of law system and the way we think about it in this country is that you've got you know uh, predictability is one feature. Uh, you know, like cases are treated alike. Some basic um, you know no ex post facto kind of uh, uh, of laws, which is a problem with the military commissions, I think. Um, you know, but but. Really, a lot of the problem of, of Guantanamo, as I sort of alluded to in my opening remarks, stems from a problem of, you know, I think initially uh, groups like mine um, had the sense that, you know, we don't really care which system you pick as long as you pick one. Um, you know, but the assertion was really that no legal, you know, it wasn't international human rights law, it wasn't the laws of war, you know. Um, it wasn't the laws of Cuba, and it wasn't the laws of the United States. Which one governs? You know, um, and I think you know the baseline is that that there is this idea, and it's it's the idea of I think of the American system, but it's also the idea in the international human rights uh, concept is that nobody falls outside of the law. There's no there are no people who are above the law, and there are no people who are beneath the law, and that whether it's the laws of war. Uh, or the international human rights law that applies during wartime to fill in the gaps in between, uh, or domestic law, um, you've got to have a system uh, that has these features of predictability and knowing in advance 
uh, that something is a crime, so you have a chance of avoiding committing it and knowing what the punishment is. Uh, Richard, I'm very pleased to hear you bring up the, the notion of a special tribunal. I actually wrote a report in 2006 called After Guantanamo, and it, it recommends a um, the creation of that very thing, a special tribunal for international terrorism suspects. Um, I, at the time, and I still actually do believe, um, thought that it's it was the United States going it alone that was a significant problem in how we were handling this issue of terrorism in general, but also prosecuting or bringing to justice terrorists. And looking at the question that of international terrorism, particularly in the context of al-Qaeda, but broader than that, um, no one country can take on for itself the power or ability to simply prosecute all of the international terrorists. That would be silly. Um, and nor should it, because international terrorism really affects all of us. Um, if the United States were to capture Osama bin Laden, we would have a very strong case for prosecuting him in U.S. courts. Um, I would support that. I think that's a fine notion. However, I think that we also have to look at the question of whether or not a prosecution of Osama bin Laden in a U.S. court is enough. Um, does it satisfy um, many of the claims that other countries would have on bin Laden himself and other senior al-Qaeda figures who have caused just as much or more damage to their countries in terms of death and destruction? Um, I think if we look at the, the example of the Saddam Hussein trial, um, which was not handled particularly well in my view. It was a rushed prosecution in one system where Saddam, Saddam's crimes affected many other countries. And it was a missed opportunity in my view, I think, to draw some of those other participants into the process. And you know, particularly with Iran, particularly with Kuwait, we missed those chances. Um, and should we look at that as a, as a warning sign for what we would do should we capture Osama bin Laden? Um, I go on in great detail, which I won't bore you with here, um, about how we should do it. But I, uh, you know, I recommended a hybrid uh, international tribunal system that was kind of similar to what we did in Lockerbie. Um, but anyway, you can go to the, our wonderful website and uh, look up after Guantanamo, and you'll get all the great details. Um, Alec, on your question, this is the the crux of the question: um, How do you define combatancy? Um, you know, I, I think that it's not ex uh, your knowledge of, of uh, of international humanitarian law is probably greater than mine, um, and despite Sarah's suggestion, I am not a lawyer. Um, but uh, I think that it's not ex it's it's not a cut or dry black or white situation that you're either a combatant or you're a civilian in terms of POW status. I think that there are uh, numerous provisions in in Geneva that assign for associated forces or fighting alongside a, a, a force in the field. Um, that would certainly apply um, to the members of, of al-Qaeda who are captured in the field. And what I'm talking about, you know, one of the things that we have lost sight of in this discussion of unlawful enemy combatant or enemy combatant um, as it's applied to so, such a broad category of, of people in detention in the United States and abroad is the notion of combatancy itself. Um, you know, we need to focus uh, not only on our enemies, uh, military detention, not only on our enemies, but on those enemies who have engaged in combat against us. And you, how you define combat, of course, is a difficult question. But um, you know, I would think that we can look to how it's defined in other contexts, whereas it's not necessarily on the battlefield, but 
the general is considered a combatant, whereas the person who pays taxes into supporting the, supporting the forces of that general is not a combatant. Um, and I think that we have some ways of defining that that just doesn't include everybody, but actually defines it on not only the enemies, but on the combatants. And so if we have a, a regime of military detention that is enemy combatant and actually is meaningful about that combatancy, I think that's the way to go. Let's try to do another, another round. Let me just check the front row to make sure it, question? Okay, let's. Hello, I'm Robert Iafola with the <coughs> excuse me, Los Angeles Daily Journal. Uh, supposing a portion of the detainees are prosecuted using U.S. laws and U.S. courts, I was wondering if the panel could talk for a moment about uh, the fruit of the poison tree problem. That is, if there's evidence that has been obtained through torture, how do you deal with that? How thorny of a problem is it? My name is Martin Klingstein from the German weekly newspaper, Die Zeit. Um, I have observed some, some trials we had in Germany and the, the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, and especially the torture question, was the main question. I think is that the Democles sort over all the trials that will happen here. And my question is how can you find not tainted evidence? In the center aisle, about uh, two-thirds of the way back. My name is uh, Dave Richters. I'm from the Cato Institute, and I'm also a former uh, Special Forces commander with three tours in Afghanistan. Um, and this is centered in response to the uh, International Tribunal question. Uh, if, if we're talking about message and, and condemnation of their message uh, and the audience, isn't it stronger to have a, uh, a federal trial with higher standards of proof and tighter rules against hearsay than to use an international one? where, as in Nuremberg or Rwanda, uh, greater hearsay and, and looser rules of evidence might damage our message. Thank you. Three great questions. Well, the first two are, are very closely aligned, so maybe I, I can uh, start with that, but I think uh, my colleagues will also have something to say about it. Uh, you know, this was obviously this question of, of fruit of the poisonous tree and what do you do with evidence obtained by torture is one of the, the key issues that comes up when we talk about, you know, can we proceed with uh, the people currently in our custody, particularly those who, you know, who were in the uh, so-called special program, the special CIA program with enhanced interrogation techniques that constitute torture. Uh, I think, you know, there's no, there's no uh, fancy answer to that problem. Evidence, we don't accept that evidence in, in our system. We find it unreliable. Uh, we find we we've made a decision that it's uh, you know that it's inherently unreliable even if you can find some evidence of you know it actually producing a true fact in interrogation it's not acceptable on our system so we can't use it so we have to find that's one of those challenges that our f people are going to have to figure out Wh how can we and and uh, you know, Sarah mentioned a, a little bit about you know going out and obtaining further evidence about people uh, who we already have. Um, you know, there's a lot that we can do. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of evidence we had about the people we have in our custody that we got before we got them, and so we wouldn't have to rely on, you know, uh, evidence obtained by torture or evidence obtained through evidence obtained by torture. Um, 
but there may be a situation where we come up against that brick wall. And you know, uh, there prosecutors make this kind of judgment all the time in our system, um, where we have to make a choice: uh, can we go forward, or do we have to shift gears, or can we do we have to you know uh, put this prosecution aside? Um, and you know, I, I am skeptical that that's going to be the case in in the majority of these. But I can't say because I haven't seen the evidence, and I don't know. Um, and we, you know, we won't. The current, the the incoming administration won't know until it digs in and, and learns more about this. Um, but I don't think that's. Uh, I, I think that's one of the big lessons we ought to learn from this is that you know let's not create that problem for ourselves going forward, ever again. Um, uh, we can't afford that. Um, but I think you know we there's not a. You know, there's not a compromise to be made on that question in terms of using evidence like that in our own system. Uh, I would really want to hit home the point that, uh, to both your questions, that we should listen to the prosecutors. I mean, the, probably the thing that I came away from this whole process was how much the conversation about Guantanamo was driven by people who hadn't uh, prosecuted terrorist cases. Uh, and who hadn't run through the, the challenges, but also the opportunities. Um, and I think I was very heartened. I mean, people basically said, yeah, you got to go out and get new uh, information. And guess what? You can do it. Uh, it's not going to be a walk in the park, but it happens. And so, you know, on the agenda of things to do immediately, mm -hmm. I'd really like, uh, I know Patrick Fitzgerald is involved in another case right now, but there are many prosecutors <laughs> who mentioned his name. He has experience, he's done this, um, and he would be my number one. Put him in charge, get the team together, get your dream team, and go out and get the information. Um, but also, build a cadre, you know, item number three, maybe. Start a program where you're developing a professional uh, group of interrogators that can be deployed at a moment's notice and that use professional interrogation techniques, not physical interrogation techniques, uh, so that, again, we're not in this position. On the issue of where and how, um, you know, I, I would say one of the big questions that we have to balance is between vaunting these people as warriors uh, and treating them as, as criminals. And, you know, I. I I understand the logic of international, I think I understand the logic of international tribunals and accountability, and I think it's extremely important for uh, the development of rule of law internationally. But on a lot of these cases, I think there really is something to be said for criminal justice system in the United States in the case of these guys, as opposed to internationally, so that they're not held up as, as some uh, further martyrs uh, very quickly on the, the fruit of the poison tree question, I think one of the things that's often overlooked in, in this discussion and concerns about how we would prosecute a lot of these people is physical evidence, which a lot of the people that we want to prosecute, we want to put on trial in U.S. courts, were captured by U.S. forces. You know, a, a lot of the Guantanamo detainees weren't, but the ones that weren't are primarily the ones that we don't want to prosecute. Um, you know, I think it's something like 30 or 35 were captured either by U.S. forces or in a U.S. Uh, cooperated operation that are the dirty 30 that you know are the bodyguards or captured with uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or captured with Abu Zubaydah um, there's a significant amount of evidence that exists 
an association with those cases, and you know, it's never going to be easy. But I think we often discount the uh, the amount of evidence that was collected at the time that led them to the led them to the arrest and at the time of arrest. Um, and on the question of a special tribunal, um, I, I I agree with Sarah. Uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that w w had we have done so badly is to elevate a lot of these criminals into holy warriors. Um, no question about it. Um, and you know, I've I've happily revised my view on whether or not I think a special tribunal is the best way to go for all of them. Um, but I think that there is a slight difference in the guys like Osama bin Laden, um, who has committed crimes or at least is accused of crimes that touch so many different countries, individuals, populations, um, that it's at least worth exploring whether or not um, a special tribunal is merited in his case or other cases of serious international terrorism that have a hard time, you would have a hard time pinning down one particular jurisdiction where you know, it would be most appropriate to try that individual. Um, the, the concerns about um, uh, hearsay evidence, there's certainly one that I uh, grappled with in in the report that I, I wrote, and, and it's, um, you know, I, Interestingly, about my concept of a special tribunal was one that could borrow, and maybe this isn't possible, but I thought it was at the time anyway, that could borrow a lot of the best practices that we've learned from other tribunals, which is why I said a hybrid special tribunal. It wasn't an extension of ICTY or Rwanda. Um, it was one that built on some of the experience that we had with Lockerbie, which was essentially a Scottish prosecution in, uh, in, the, in the Netherlands, but using Scottish law. Um, and whether or not we could identify some innovative way of adopting a very respected legit and legitimate um, trial process and creating an international tribunal around it, or at least a a a, a broader set of uh, prosecutors or prosecuting countries than just the United States. Time for one last comment from each of our panelists. Uh, I want to suggest on the um, not only to, that we should be listening to uh, the prosecutors, but there's a whole stream of retired uh, intelligence officers who retired precisely because they didn't like the techniques that were being used. And I hope that some of those people will come back in to the U.S. government. Um, some of the things that I learned in talking to them were things about biometrics and how that might be useful with some of the so-called other category. Uh, strategic communication, I mean, there may be ways and when we release somebody uh, that we can thank them for their help in a way that makes them not likely uh, a target f for joining al-Qaeda if they were ever a part. Um, but also that the best information that is gathered uh, comes right when you pick up somebody. That a lot of these guys found, you know, if you had a cell phone and there were numbers there, there was physical uh, material on the body, which, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't realized. But the idea of holding somebody either indefinitely or for years and years and that you get some kind of important uh, intelligence seemed um, absurd to them. And lastly, and it, it's, a, it's a larger point, I think, you know, on the one hand, if we leave all of this, with all due respect to my lawyers, I don't like to go anywhere without lawyers around. Um, if we leave it, though, all to the lawyers, we could get into as much problem as we got into in 2001. That there needs to be, in some ways, a broadening of legal culture in, in the United States, that we need to know more about uh, our laws, and we need to know more about international law. And we need to demand more that we are compliant with it. And I think that understanding how the law, rule of law means something, certainly to me, having studied a country where rule of man is so institutionalized, 
Um, and we need to be demanding that our government is in compliance because it brings us greater security. I guess I just want to reiterate that um, a point that's been made throughout, and that is that um, it's time for us to start having some confidence as Americans that we can solve a problem like this. Um, I, I think uh, you know, President-elect Obama said, I think, in the campaign, um, fear is a bad advisor. Uh, you know, and it, it makes people do things and nations do things that, that are out of character um, and not smart uh, and that they later regret. Um, so we, we, you know, I think that a lot of this uh, moving forward has got to be an attitude shift uh, in this administration. And we, this, is a, this is a problem that is not nearly as complicated as some of the other problems that, uh, that uh, we need to solve uh, in this world and in our own country. Um, so uh, I think if we step forward with a large dose of that, uh, that we can, uh, we can sort this out and, and move on to bigger problems. I'm not wholeheartedly sure that this is any less complicated than some of the other ones, but uh, uh, I hope so. Um, but I, I would just like you to, to leave you with the thought that I think we all who have been working on this for so long um, and struggling with it for years and years um, may be overlooking the significance of what we think is about to happen after January 20th. And we simply now take it for granted that Obama, President-elect Obama is going to close Guantanamo when he takes office. Um, but I would admonish you to believe that that wasn't a foregone conclusion not very long ago. Not President-elect Obama, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion that on January 21st or whenever it happens in 2009 that the United States was going to actively pursue a policy of closing Guantanamo. And that is a significant and important step that we have to recognize the significance of. It is not enough. Um, we obviously will begin a whole new series of discussions and arguments and, and debates about what particular path the new administration chooses to go down when it, as it pursues its policy of closing Guantanamo. But something big is about to happen here, and it's very rare um, that you see um, a president or a country take such a significantly different step um, than it has been pursuing in the past on an issue as of, significant, of such significance as protecting the country against terrorism. So if you leave with one thought, I'll leave with that for you. So let me thank our audience for their participation and their very good questions. Let me thank the panelists for their expertise. For those who say that this issue is too hard to solve, too hard to take first steps, I think our panelists have offered very practical ways to take a step forward to close Guantanamo and at the same time keep our country safe. So I thank you for your participation today. I thank our panelists. Thank you.